Welcome to Hope Community Podcast. It's great to have you join us today listening online. We pray you'll be impacted by our message this week. Enjoy. This is the same tree in the same park in London and these photos were taken across the four seasons. You might already be picking your favourite, your favourite season. Now there are very stark external changes over those seasons, but if we were to peel back the protective bark and look underneath, we would see also another story, a recorded history of internal changes across the seasons. So people who are trained to read the the cross-section, the cross-cut of a tree, will say that those rings and those markings represent certain things and they can say, this was a season when the tree really flourished. It didn't have to work hard at all to grow. It was a season of plenty. And this was a season where it really had to struggle to survive. For example, this is when it was infected by blight or disease. This is maybe when it struggled through a drought or through a flood. This is when a bushfire ravaged the scrub. This is when it was struck by lightning. So a recorded history of all the seasons and all the things that tree has endured. If we could do a cross-section of your heart, if we were to look under the protective covering bark of skin, and I wonder what recorded history your heart would tell us. What has your heart endured, lived through, survived, grown through in the seasons of life. Now, certainly we would find that there were seasons that were kind of so-so and then maybe we would see seasons in your life where you had real contentment. We'd probably also be able to see in the recorded history of your heart that there were some seasons where you might have felt floods, like floods of stress, or you went through a season of drought, a drought of meaning or a drought of hope or a drought of relationship, you know, deep loneliness. Or maybe you could say that's when my life, my heart, was struck by lightning, the lightning of trauma or tragedy. This is when a bushfire came through my life, a bushfire of loss. I wonder what the seasons of your life would tell us, what would be recorded in your heart. And I wonder which seasons did you grow the most and what helped that growth, what hinders growth? But Maybe I'm rushing ahead of myself. What do I mean when I talk about seasons? Well, somebody has come up with the seven seasons of a woman's life and they are spills, frills, thrills, bills, ills, pills and wills, which is very clever, but instinctively we know that's not reality because it kind of gives the impression that there's this predictable chronological order of things. You can know what's coming next and you only go through each one once. Instinctively, we know that's not the case. I find it much more helpful to look at this. So in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that for everything, right, so much, much more than just seven seasons, for everything, there is a season. So there are multiple seasons in life. And a time for every purpose. 
under heaven. And then in that third chapter of Ecclesiastes, it spells out what this everything might look like. And look at that list. Talk about the good, the bad and the ugly. Something that really strikes me about this, and this instinctively we know is true, is that there's no particular season that's linked to an age or stage of life. You could go through any of those at any time in your life. You could go through it more than once. But also, when I said before about the good, the bad and the ugly, it's not that some people, when they crack the God code, they'll only get the good stuff up there. And if you could just find the right way to, you know, pray or follow God, that you'll be guaranteed only the good stuff up there. The reason I really value this passage in Ecclesiastes is that it tells us that that's normal. The normal life is going to have all those seasons. And the key word is the word and. Expect to have seasons of weeping and laughing. Expect to have seasons of losing and starting new stuff. That's the normal life. So a woman for all seasons is a woman who may not like the fact that that's true. It'd be lovely if we could cherry pick just some of those. But a woman for all seasons knows that that's the reality and tries to know how can I somehow, in accepting that, how can I grow? Now, it'd be lovely if we could spend time looking at each of those seasons and looking at ways that we can grow through them, but because there's too many, what I've done is I've taken the four seasons that we just looked at before with that tree in the park, four seasons we are familiar with, summer, autumn, winter, spring, and then I went through Ecclesiastes in that passage and I looked at what are some of those seasons that might fit under each of those seasons of the year. So we're going to spend some time looking at summer as a season to laugh and to dance. That's the season of joy and celebration. We're going to look at autumn as a season to weep, mourn, uproot and lose. So that's a season of loss and grief, letting go. Winter, a season to seek, gather, keep, build up, put down roots. So that in that winter season, that's a season of hard times in our lives. But I also want us to look at the winter of our discontent in that season. And lastly, spring. That's a time to be born, to plant and to sow. So that's a season of new beginnings. So already, I wonder if you're getting a bit of a sense of which of those seasons you might be in. Let's go back to that cross-section of the tree. Do you notice that it's called growth? They're called growth rings. So whether or not the tree goes through the good, the bad or the ugly, they are called growth rings. And as Sandra has already shared with us, in going through the seasons of life, we have this this choice, this, this pathway. Do I just go through it or is there a way of maybe growing through the seasons of my life? And that's what we're going to be looking at when we look at these four seasons. And what do I mean by grow, grow through? Well, I'm going to use this as my definition for the day, that for me, a woman for all seasons is a woman who's like a tree planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in season. There is fruit to bear in every season. We don't just go through the season. How can we bear fruit in the season? A woman for all season, B, 
bears hard fruit in every season. And more and more that's the woman I want to be. I don't have any control over which season I'm going to face, but I'm realising that I can actually make a choice to not just bear the season and hope it goes quickly, but to bear fruit in the season. That's more and more the woman I want to be. So that woman is like a tree. There are many references to trees in Scripture, and I've chosen a pin-up tree to represent each of the four seasons we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be talking about how to bear fruit in that season. The first season we're going to be looking at is the season of summer, and that's the, the pin-up tree I've chosen for it. This is a season to laugh and the dance and to dance. And the reason I've chosen that tree is because I think that picture really represents these verses. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, I'm going to say this to you, and I want you to be very aware of this. You actually might be going through a summer season and not be aware of it. Because when I go through the four seasons, by the end you might think, oh, I'm not any of the other three, which kind of suggests you might be the first one. You actually might be going through a summer and not have recognised it. Because you might be thinking, well, I'm not clapping, I'm not singing, (laughs) so how could this be a summer? Well, some of us sing and clap and dance on the inside and it may not be obvious, but you actually may be going through a summer season. And what I would like to say is don't waste it. Don't waste it. We're going to look at that in a moment. So let's look at this season of summer, the summer to laugh and to dance, and let's look at some research into laughter. The number of times a typical four-year-old child laughs a day compared to the typical 40-year-old women, any guesses? How many times a day for kids? Hundreds, I heard, yep, 400, but only four And I have some days where I'd be pushed to make four, but maybe that's because I'm a lot older than 40. (laughs) Maybe it goes down one one a decade. I don't know. So I wonder, are you a naturally joyful, playful person or are you naturally a very serious sort of person? Some of us seem to be more predisposed to summer, aren't we? And some not so much. So let's map this out. Um, Many years ago, a bloke called Byrne, Uh, talked about this really helpful model. It's called TA, transactional analysis. And he reckons that in any person there are three main modes that they can be functioning from without necessarily even knowing it. And there's a positive and negative aspect to the parent and to the child. So the positive parent is that side of you that is really responsible and dutiful and guiding and caring, doing the right thing. But then the negative parent is like finger-pointing. That's the judgmental, that's the controlling, that's the critical, legalistic side. Then the adult is just the rational, objective, logical, analytical side of us. Come, let us reason together, that side. And then actually Byrne talks about three aspects of the child, but I've just simplified it down to two, the positive and negative. So the positive child is spontaneous, creative, fun-loving and carefree. So whereas the positive parent is caring and very responsible, the positive child is carefree, free from care. The negative child, though, is dependent, manipulative, rebellious, 
and defiant. So Burns says that at any time in the day we are functioning out of one of those without consciously being aware of it. So let's see how this plays out. Let's say that one row is my husband Greg and the next row is me. My husband could ask me a question straight from the adult, fact-seeking, information-seeking, do you know where my watch is? I can't find it. Now, I could answer Greg from any of those other modes. I could answer him straight from adult to adult. Last time I saw your watch, it was on the counter in the kitchen. Or I can answer Greg from my caring parent, giving him some TLC, and I could say to him, honey, you just go and put your feet up and I'm going to look through the whole house (laughs) until I can find your watch. (laughs) In theory, right, in theory that's what I could say. Or I could say to Greg from my critical parent, you know, how many kids have I got anyway, two or three, go find your own watch. Or I could answer Greg from my child wanting to hook his child, that kind of playful one, and I could say to him, did you have a real look or just a male look? Or I could answer Greg from my child wanting to hook his parent. Now, remember, this is all done subconsciously. We're not aware of it. And that's why this is mapping the dance, a dance that we might be doing subconsciously. So I could answer Greg this way and say, no, I don't know where your watch is. I don't know where anything is. Today's been a terrible day and I want him to forget all about his watch and come over and just comfort me in that. So I just gave you five different ways in which I could respond to just that simple question, do you know where my watch is? Byrne says that a healthy person can move through all of those. And certainly in a healthy relationship, you can both be the grown-ups together. You can do the both be responsible, but also give each other a bit of TLC if you need it. We can do the come let us reason together and we can let our child out to play with each other. We can be playful. Now, some of us were raised in families and conditioned to not have a very big child. Some of us look like this highly responsible, where you're giving blood transfusions everywhere of hope and help and healing. So you might have in your family, you might have been the oldest child or the most responsible child, you might have even parented your own parents, and now you might still be parenting your own parents because of their needs. You might have a role in your job outside the home or inside the home where you're doing a whole lot of guiding, caring, being responsible. In your neighbourhood, you might be like that. You might have a discipling sort of role here in church, mentoring others. So you could be given these blood transfusions all over the place. And look at that tiny little child that hardly comes out to play. Now, some of us are like that because we were raised in a family where play was not honoured. In fact, it was shamed. I remember working with a woman once who even lying on her bed reading a book was a dangerous thing for her to do because if her mum walked through the door, she would say, get up and do something useful. If her father walked through the door and heard the kids just mucking around laughing, he would say, what's all this nonsense? So she grew up feeling really guilty about relaxing, one, but any time letting her child out to play, she thought that um, God's business is serious and therefore we have to be very, very serious. Now, my husband and I both grew up in families where we kind of were conditioned a bit to be the very responsible parent. He's the oldest son of four. I'm the oldest daughter in a family of six, and we're both very, very responsible people. Um, 
The good news is it's not too late to learn how to be a child, which we learn from, remember C.S. Lewis who wrote the Narnia stories, like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? He wrote this. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. So he discovered his inner playful child a bit later. He found that summer in himself a bit later in life. And so did Greg and I. So here are my boys. This is the most recent photo a couple of months ago taken of my our two sons. And they are both very naturally playful. You might see it in their faces. Where did they get that from? Not from us. <laughs> in fact, the opposite. I reckon we have learnt to be playful because of them, through them. And I'll give you an example of them. So Greg and I, as I said, look more like that, the P, the very, very responsible, strong work ethic. You know, first we work, then we play, but only if we have any time or energy left over. Anyway, 10 years ago, Greg and I, for the very first and only time in our life, and those of you who run a business know that you don't get any sick pay, you don't get any holiday pay, so it's pretty hard to find that time or the money to do that sort of stuff. But 10 years ago, we decided for the one and only time we're going to do a long service leave sabbatical. And our boys were really excited for us, except when they found out a very, very big block of that time was going to be spent working with um, teams who are having, missionary teams who are having major struggles in Indonesia and then Thailand and then China and then Kyrgyzstan <laughs> and that we were also going to be spending a lot of time studying and um, professional development. They weren't quite as excited for us, so they hatched a plan and on the day that they were with us at the airport saying goodbye to us, they, they presented what they called their mission challenge to us. So they gave us a box of um, party hats and they gave us one of those disposable cameras which took 22 photos in this particular one. And their mission was that they wanted that where, I'll show you in a moment, that um, wherever we were in the world, we had to put on our party hat and go up to complete strangers and ask them, would they please take a photo of us? Which we did. So all around the world, we had people laughing with us or at us or both, I don't know. But our kids knew that we actually needed something to help bring out the child in us. And, and since then, we're not as bad as we used to be. I think we're a lot more playful and I think the kids have taught us a lot. So what about you? Now, maybe you're going through a summer. Maybe you're actually going through a season right now where you're letting a child out to play. Well, I hope you're maximising that. I hope you're making lots of room in your life to suck the marrow out of this season. It's really important to do that and to even put some in your storehouse for what might be coming around the corner. And for those of you who 
are not going through a summer season, you're going through one of the others, which we'll go through in a moment, I hope you're finding little opportunities just to grab a moment of summer. You might not have a whole season, but you can try to look for a little, a little sliver of it to put in. I also would like to ask you, who are your playmates? I find the people who do best in life have got soulmates and playmates. And I'm wondering whether you... Um, my, my closest friend is naturally very, very playful and she brings out the, the inner child in me. So it's been a real gift for me. But also, what's something worth celebrating in your life? And I wonder whether you are stopping and marking that and making sure that you are doing that. So if you are going through a summer season, which might be the absence of anything bad, and now you're realising, oh, it's not just the absence of bad, I might actually have the presence of some good, I better really maximise this. It's really important that you don't just go through summer thinking, this is good, I'll just lay back and soak it all up. I wonder whether also to think about what might be the heart fruit for me to bear in this season. How can I make sure I'm also bearing fruit in my summer? Now, a number of years ago, my husband Greg and I went through a summer season and I think we were very intentional about the fruit. We, we were very intentional about gratitude. Every day we'd look at each other and say, oh, take a deep breath on this. This is so good. We know we're in a season of favour. We're in a season of plenty. We knew that and we were so thankful and we wanted out of that to, to share with others. And I'm so glad we did that. Because, again, we had no idea what was around the corner and we plunged into autumn straight after and I'm so glad we maximised the summer, that we didn't miss it because we really needed in the tapestry of life to have made sure that we sucked the marrow out of the summer because you don't know what's around the corner. Um, and we, we heard that sung in the Desert Song. This is the very end of the Desert Song where it says... This is my prayer in the harvest. I think harvest is kind of like the summertime, where favour and providence flow. I know I'm filled to be emptied again. And that certainly was the case for us. We were filled in our summer and then followed by an autumn where we were emptied. So let's look at autumn. This is the tree I've chosen, the willow tree. And... Autumn is a time to weep, to mourn, to uproot, to lose. And the verse I think that speaks to that is from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. It's looking back, remembering loss, aching, longing. So autumn is a season of loss and grief. Who experiences loss? Well, one writer suggests anything that you have, you can lose. Anything you are attached to, you can be separated from. Anything you love can be taken away from you. Yet, if you really have nothing to lose, you have nothing. So who experiences loss? People who have invested in stuff who have let stuff become important to them, which is risky. So going back to our friend C.S. Lewis, he says, 
To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket of your own selfishness. There it will not be broken. It will be unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So the risk of living and loving is that we can be hurt, we can lose. And that became really clear to me yesterday when I saw in all the media stuff about the Queen's death, they reminded us of something she said. And this is after I think her husband died, that grief is the price we pay for love. Now, sometimes that price is really high and it's understandable that sometimes we think too high. So do you recognise these two guys? Some of you might not be old enough, but Simon and Garfunkel. And one of their hit songs was a song called I Am A Rock. And if you do some research about that, that song, you'll find that Paul Simon wrote this song after he experienced a major loss in his life. Uh, his best friend died. And in his grief he went to that place of thinking, no, the price is too high. And so he wrote, I'm shielded in my armour, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. You can understand that, can't you? That after loss, you just want to say, no, it costs too much. I'm not going to go go there. But we pay another cost then, don't we? The cost that C.S. Lewis uh, talked about there. So what do we mean by losses? Obviously deaths are losses, but then we talk about living losses, losses just as we age, just going through life. And so some of those types of losses, uh, the living losses, We could lose our identity, especially if a role changes. We could lose status, a relationship, a whole community, a lifestyle. We could lose our health, energy, some functioning, lose our independence, lose a sense of power. We could lose our dreams and hopes and plans. We could lose innocence. And we could lose faith. They're just some of the living losses. And of course, for some of us, we might be going through an autumn season right now because either we're experiencing one of those main losses or autumn sometimes is multiple losses with flow-on effects. So maybe you're going through an autumn right now because a number of these things are changing. Uh, You know that saying, how do I stay grounded in a world where the ground keeps moving? Autumn is when the ground keeps moving and stuff that used to define you or that you felt you were sure of or uh, you had, now suddenly they're taken away, they're gone and you're suddenly left with, well, who, who am I? So autumn often has got this real sense of shaking, shaking ground and some of you may be relating to that. Of course, when there's loss, there's grief. And I was really interested to see the original um, 
the root word for grief. So in the Old French, it's from the word griveur, which came from the Latin grivare, which meant to make heavy, and gravis, which meant weighty or to make a burden. So grief means a heavy burden. So under this heavy burden, how, how could we possibly bear fruit? You might feel like I don't even know how to get my no, next breath. I'm feeling so crushed by this heavy burden. How do I bear fruit in the midst of my grief and loss? Well, one way is to make sure that I am doing good grief. And good grief is, if we look at, there's two main types of grief, clean grief and messy grief. So clean grief is the grief that comes um, when either you planned for, for a change, right, so you were in control of it, or you prepared for it, or when you didn't plan the change, it just came, but somehow you had done some of the work beforehand. So, for example, if you're thinking about the loss of, of death, um, it's when somebody dies and even though you were rent in two, you have this sense of peace because you said what you needed to say before they died and you heard what you needed to hear. That's, that's clean grief. Still raw and rips you apart, but it's a clean, can be more a clean cut. As opposed to messy grief, all these regrets, I wish I'd said that. I wish I hadn't said the other. I wish I'd made that time to ask that question. I wish, I wish, I wish. Lots and lots of regrets. And you might remember a song by this band called Mike and the Mechanics years ago. They wrote a song called The Living Years and in it he talks about messy grief. I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away. I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. And then in the chorus they talk about how make sure you make use of the living years. It's too late when they've died. Make use of the living years. So clean grief, good grief is where we do make use of the living years. I think it's really important if there's, if there's something that you know in yourself might um, lead to regrets if you don't take an opportunity to say something or to or to hear, ask something to hear something. Um, it's really important that we make time for that because we really don't know when an autumn is going to come, when we're going to be hit by, by that. So to try to make the time for that. But obviously if we, if we didn't get that time and we've lost someone, then maybe what we have to do is go through some grief work with somebody else to help us to work, work through those regrets. But also if there's someone in your life who you know that if you suddenly were taken out, um, like I think about this often, that if I, if I died suddenly, would I be condemning my boys to a whole lot of baggage because of stuff that's really messy between us that they didn't get a chance to talk about or I didn't sort through. And I'm trying, trying to have give them as least baggage as possible. So if there's a misunderstanding, I try to as quickly as possible sort it out between, between us, right? So, um, but to really try to work on that because 
Death is just the end of life. It's not the end of a relationship. And if you have a, a, a complicated, messy relationship breathing, you're going to have a complicated, messy rela- relationship when they're gone or you're gone. It's going to continue. The relationship will still be messy even though they're dead or even though you're dead. So it's really trying to maximise that because the bitterest tears shed over graves are for words left unsaid and for deeds left undone. So it's really important that we um, bear fruit in autumn but also bear fruit um, before autumn, getting, making sure that we've we're prepared the soil so that we can bear fruit. But we also need to be aware of unhelpful grief reactions. Now, when my, when my grandfather on my mother's side died, um, Mediterranean, Maltese family, and the tradition in the Maltese um, society is my grandma wore black as a widow for the next year. Now, I was probably 12 at the time and I remember thinking, this is really weird. We're living in Melbourne and... And I thought it was really weird. But I look back now and think, gee, that was helpful because my grandmother never had to put up with anybody implying she should be over it by now. For a whole year she was expected to not be over it. She was allowed to lament for a whole year in black. Okay? And I think about how often an unhelpful reaction to grief is the privacy thing, you know, you've got to hold it all inside or once the funeral's over or once six weeks is over or something, you should be moving on by now. There's some really good research coming through now about what's called toxic positivity or compulsive positivity. And a lot of it's coming out because of, in social media, it's almost like people only post the smiling, sparkly, shiny photos. And it's like if you're not, if you haven't got something really positive to put up there, then don't clutter the universe with anything else, which again flies in the face of Ecclesiastes 3. What do we do with the rest of our life? Not allowed to to post it, obviously. And so there's some really helpful work by Dr Susan David, you might have heard of her, or Dr, um, is it Christine Kane who wrote the book Quiet for Introverts? She's written a book called Bittersweet about there's a bitterness and the sweetness of life. We need to make room for both. So if there's anyone in your life who you know you're going through an autumn season and this person in your life is telling you to buck up, look at the happy side of it, constantly trying to shut you down, not letting you do good, healthy grieving, maybe don't hang out with them as much because it's not good grief they're leading you to. They're actually stunting grief because some people are actually trapped in some bad theology. They seem to think that we're not trusting God if we really grieve, which is not the Jesus I see in Scripture. And what do we see in Scripture? We just saw in Ecclesiastes, there actually is a time to weep. There is a time to mourn. You're not being sinful by doing that. There is a time for that. In Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. And in Romans, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're actually invited to not shut down others' weep, but enter with them into their season of lament. So can I just say, if you are going through an autumn, if there are any people in your life or if there's any um, distorted theology you might be tuning into that shuts you down, to be given permission (laughs) 
that it is good to grieve and to grieve well. But in grieving well, the truth is that even clean grief is messy. It, it is such a hard thing. Grief is really, really hard. It is incredibly hard. We want it to look like this, but in fact it looks like that. So one helpful model I found when I did some research about grief was the oscillation model. And if you think about a fan that oscillates from side to side, that sometimes if you're thinking, how do I, how do I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death? How do I actually walk through rather than just staying there? Um, and I think the oscillation model is really helpful because it helps us to kind of make our way through the valley of shadows. And so we go to this side and we do some actual grief work. We let ourselves sit in the loss and we count the cost of the loss and we lament. But if we stay there, we could actually get pulled into this hole of despair. So then we oscillate to here and we actually let ourselves kind of be in the moment and move forward a bit, think about what, what it might be like to move on. But if we only went there, that's denial. Wouldn't be good to do that. So we go back and do some more grief work, then we go back. Because I know some people who feel really guilty when they, you know, for two minutes they forgot. They forgot, oh, I should be feeling miserable. But for two minutes they actually started to feel a bit of hope again about I can move on. Maybe morning is coming after the long night of the soul. Well, that's good grief work, actually moving between the two and you're still moving moving forward. And in the grief work, as you move, oscillate between the two, um, what grief work is in terms of walking through the shadows, let yourself cry. There is a time to weep. There's been some really interesting research about is there a different composition um, in the tears we cry when we're happy or the tears we cry when we're just peeling an onion or the tears we cry when we're sad. And it is different that the tears we cry when we're happy actually have some of the serotonin in the tears. The tears we cry when we're peeling an onion, just flush out our eyes, that's all. But the tears we cry when we're sad have got a sedative in them. Um, okay, did you ever notice that you said to somebody, I had this good long cry and then I fell asleep? And it's because of the sedatives that in, the, in the crying that can help us sleep. So crying can be really good for us or write it out. It might be really helpful to have a grief journal and some people make an appointment with their grief every day and for 20 minutes they just write. They write the different face of the grief they're experiencing today. Um, or talk it out with somebody uh, and walk it out. Um, exercise is really important when you, you're grieving. So if you are going through a season of autumn, if this mainly, when you look back on this season in your life, if you mainly will look at this as a season of change and loss, of, of grief about loss, then that's autumn. Right? We think about falling leaves in autumn. Things are falling off, falling away. But how can we not just go through that but grow through it? And I'm wondering whether, I'm not going to give you any suggestions, but I wonder whether you might even think about what might be some of the heart fruit that we can bear in that season. Winter. 
Maybe I should have chosen this tree instead. (laughs) But I chose an oak, and the reason why is because in Isaiah we read, for God has planted them like strong and graceful oaks for his glory. And there's some work to do in the winter season in our life, and I said before it's the hard times, the season of hard times. And this is a season where it's important that we go seeking, gathering, keeping, building up and putting down roots. Why is that? Well, you've probably heard that if a tree is going through a really easy, plentiful season of lots of good rainfall, that actually is not a good growth predictor for how it's going to do in the future because when a tree has gone through a really easy season and lots of water coming its way, it doesn't have to put down a deep root system. It can put a shallow root system. So when the hard times come, it doesn't know how to go down deep into finding the nourishment down down there. So a season of, of easy does not predict good growth afterwards. But when a tree has to really fight to survive, for example, through a time of drought or ice or snow, harsh conditions, it has to push down deep to find nutrients. And what it does is it establishes a root system that um, steers it well in in the, the time to come. So I want us to look at winter as a time, a heart the hard times of life, but how can we go through them in a way that pushes down deep, that puts down deep roots, that builds up our system? And the way I want to look at that is by, you might have heard the saying that a woman is like a tea bag. You never know how strong she is until you put her in hot water. So let's use the analogy of hot water as a way of looking at going through hard times. And I want us to look at at hot water and eggs, carrots and coffee beans. So what happens when we put eggs in hot water? Obviously, they grow hard. And for some of us, when we are faced with the hard things of life, we do that. We wall up our hearts. We grow, grow hard. Now, that's really understandable. Um... I know when, I, when I've experienced some hard times in life, uh, a big part of me just wants to say, you know, go away, all the rest of you. I'm just going to look after me. I'm going to close myself in. And it's, it's an understandable reaction to have. But if I stay in that place, I usually, you know, put up these signs of no entry on my heart, stay out. And I don't just keep the bad out, I'll probably keep the good out, which is a risk but I also lock myself in and I will not bear fruit. I can't bear fruit when I am closed off like that, even though it might be uh, a normal first reaction. So what have you done in the hard times of life? What are you doing now if you're going through a winter, a season of hard times where you're struggling? Do you feel like there's something in you hardening? Are you pushing others out? Are you holding yourself in? Other people, oh, sorry, let's look at carrots. What, what happens to them when they are immersed in hot water? Well, obviously they become really soft and mushy and that's what's happened to some of us when we go through the hard times of life. We are so scared of being hurt again that we can become very fearful and what we could do then is become almost like people-pleasing to make sure that I please everybody so nobody else will hurt me. 
and I chop off bits of myself to fit in with you, go along with you because I don't want to be hurt again. And it's almost like I become soft and mushy. Now, again, that is so understandable, especially as a first reaction, that when we're hurt, we don't want to be hurt again. So we might find ourselves going to that place where we just feel so incredibly weak and vulnerable uh, and I don't want to be hurt again. But if we stay there, if we make that our lifestyle, we won't bear fruit. We can't bear fruit. If you find that you do tend to, and a lot of women struggle with this, and I think in the life of the church, maybe we're almost rewarded for some of this behaviour, but about people-pleasing. And um, if you find that there's a lot of that in you, just recently I came across this podcast by, you may have heard of her, Dr Alison Cook, and um, so we have Spotify at home and for free we can download this podcast by her. And um, she's a Christian psychologist who's putting out some really helpful stuff about um, boundaries, um, about the difference between selfishness and healthy selfhood, uh, about uh, codependency, about people-pleasing. So some really helpful information out there that I'd, I'd highly recommend the best of you. Other people, when they go through the hard times, the hot water are like coffee beans. So it's almost as if the hot water releases the best in them and somehow or other the hard times bring out what is the most strong in them, the best in them, releases an aroma in them. So what does that look like? Well, I reckon this is an example. Paul in prison saying, I've learnt regardless of the circumstances, to be content. I think this is another example of coffee beans. Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning how to dance in the rain. Uh, I reckon Joseph in the Old Testament, who was going through a winter land of being sold into slavery by his own brothers and uh, imprisoned falsely, all the stuff he went through in his winter. It's really interesting what he named his two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means God has, sorry, God has made me forget, and by forget it means let go of, all my trouble and all my father's household. And Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. How's that for bearing fruit in your winter land? I think Joseph is a really good example of the coffee beans. I hate what's happening to me, but I'm going to be, if I have to be in prison, I'll be the best prisoner I can be. It's, it's just extraordinary. Uh, you may have heard of Corrie ten Boon. Her winter land was in a German concentration camp during World War II. Don't wrestle, just nestle. In the song we heard sung to us, this is my prayer in the fire, in weakness or trial or pain, there is a faith proved of more worth than gold. So refine me, Lord, through the flame. Refinement in the midst of the, that. It is well with my soul. So these are all declarations, I think, of what coffee bean is. So we're all of them, right? We're all got the, the egg. We've all got the, 
the carrot stuff. But I'd like to suggest you probably have also, but you might not remember, you've also got some coffee bean stuff. So I want you to think about, and this might be a really good activity for you to do later at home, to recall a winter season in your life and how are you stronger as a result of this. Now, you didn't feel strong maybe in the middle of it, but now looking back, you feel stronger. Um, one of my sisters who had a double mastectomy and um, really aggressive breast cancer, uh, she certainly was not, did not feel strong in it, but afterwards she said to me, I actually look back on that season and I'm grateful. And I asked her why and she said, well, it just clarified everything. I, I realised what's important to me and what's just crap. I worked out who the true friends are and I also discovered in myself who I really am. So on the other side of it, not in the middle of it, but on the other side of it, she kind of felt that she's stronger. So if you can answer that question just to yourself, if you think about a season of winter, really a hard struggle time, and but how are you stronger on the other side of it? That's your heart fruit. You've just identified your heart fruit. But there's another way I want to look at winter. So you might recall in one of Shakespeare's plays, he talks about now is the winter of our discontent. And some of us are going through a winter season because of some thinking that we bring into life. We've actually created a winter for ourselves because of expectations that we have. So you might have already seen this research that unrealistic expectations are considered to be a major risk factor in depression. Not all depression, but some depression can be a major risk factor. And it's usually linked to if-then thinking. So if this, then this, magical thinking we talk about. You may have heard of um, uh, the work of, of John and Julie Gottman, who are relationship specialists, and they were looking at how dangerous unrealistic expectations are in marriage. And in their research, they in an inventory measuring risk factors for divorce, so who are most likely to, to divorce, they found that marital disappointment and disillusionment was the most powerful single predictor of divorce. So disappointment and disillusionment. So if I'm in a state constantly of seeing a deficit between the ideal what I want and the ordeal what I think I'm living with, that gap can, can make me more prone to, um, to divorce. And again, it's got some of that if-then thinking. So look at those faces. What could that woman have said to make that man look so stunned? So unrealistic expectations. So there's a really helpful model that I came across some time ago that really helps me with my expectations and particularly if I am at all likely to create a winter for myself or for others. So a guy called David Augsburger, who was brought out to Australia by Queensland Baptists a number of years ago, he presented this model which I found life-changing. He reckons that we would love to think that out there is this 100% perfect person, 
lifestyle, house, church, pastor, friend, 100%. And we've got some programs on TV which create this false impression, like, you know, there used to be programs called Perfect Match and all that stuff that implied that there was this perfect person out there for you or the perfect one. Augsburger says that that would be really lovely, 100%, but whilst we're living outside the garden, there is no such thing as 100% anything. That the best we can hope for is that 80% of your partner, your church, your job, your friendship, whatever, 80% you just naturally really love, but everyone and everything is going to have 15% that kind of take it or leave it, and everyone and everything is going to have 5% that really gets up your nose. <laughs> Augsburger said that the people who have a more satisfying life are the ones who say 100% would be lovely but it doesn't exist, this side of heaven. How can I celebrate the 80%? How can I deal with, with, um, with the stuff that's not in the 80%? The people who go job hopping, relationship hopping, church hopping, friend hopping are people who think that 100% exists and the false images, the compulsive positivity on social media kind of creates this idea that 100% exists um, and I want that. And when I see the 20% in, in my friend or my partner or my church or my job, I resent that 20% so much that I just brood about it and there's a saying that whatever you think about grows so that that 20% grows and grows and grows and grows until now that's the lens through which I view that thing and, I, and now I'm, I'm, I'm with a monster. The thing is, though, if I leave this church, leave this partner, leave this job, leave this friend, no matter who, who I'm with, everyone and everything is going to have 20%. And what's more, I take my 20% with me. I mean, how dare I think that it's really, oh, it's so hard for me to put up with the 20% in my job or my church or whatever, they're living with my 20% too, okay? So it's really helpful to know there's no such thing as 100%, it doesn't exist, to have realistic expectations, to make sure I celebrate what's in the 80, make time to celebrate it. In the 15%, see if I can talk, talk that through. And in the 5%, um, if it's just the 5% of, you know, two sinners living together um, intimately and therefore we're going to annoy each other, all right, we're all going to have to live, to live with that. But if in the, the 5% there's some of those non-negotiables like abuse or abandonment, I'm not saying you just cop that sweet, but, but to mainly seek to live in the 80%. So I found that really, really helpful and it helps me whenever I might be tempted to go into a winter of discontent to ask myself, what expectations have I got and am I setting another person or a job or a place or a church up to be that 100%? So as we do that, you might think about what's the heart fruit then I will bear in this winter season and we're going to finish by looking at spring. So spring is a, is a time in our life to be born, to plant, to sow. And the verse I've chosen for that is from Job. At least there is hope for a tree. For if it is cut down, it will sprout again. So it's a season of new beginnings. So I'm wondering what might it be time for in your life to be born or to plant or to sow? And is there any possibility that 
this is a season in your life for something new and you might be resisting it. Because I heard that when they do some research into what people think about on their deathbed, what regrets they have, it's really clear that nobody regrets the money they earned in their lifetime, right? So they're not lying there thinking, I wish I'd earned more money. The top two regrets on deathbeds are, I wish I'd spent more time with my loved ones and love them better, right? which is maximising the living years we talked about before. And the other one is, I wish I'd taken more risks. So I think what we do is we take these safe little nibbles around the edges of life rather than bigger bites. And often the reason we do that is because we're worried what other people are going to think about us. Although the older I get, the more I realise I'm not on people's minds very much, (laughs) which is very liberating, isn't it? And worrying what other people are going to think, you know, who does she think she is or, or whatever, or fear of, fear of other things can stop us from taking those, um, those risks because some of us have got a really strong risk adversity. We maybe we've got this very small comfort zone and we don't want to step outside. So that's what limits. Maybe there's a spring that the spirit is trying to breathe into us, but we're saying, no, I'm really comfortable here, comfortably numb as a Pink Floyd song said, comfortably numb here, I don't want to be disturbed. Or busyness can actually stop us from moving on to the best. Or, as I said, maybe a fear that we might have. You may have heard this poem by Mary Oliver. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So if you find in yourself that maybe Maybe you're feeling a nudge of the spirit. It's time now to step out and try something new, to give something a go. Maybe after the long, slow COVID laying low, hibernation, maybe something is sprouting in you. And I'm wondering what would it take to say yes to it? Because the spirit is always coming alongside us to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable if we would just, just listen. So is there a new song that the Lord might be wanting to birth or plant in you and how can you say yes to it? And are there any people in your life who might be spring champions? Maybe there are some friends you've got um, or it could be a mentor, a role model who can champion you as you step into a spring because maybe it is time. Maybe the Spirit is saying it's time for something new. And then for you to consider what might be the fruit of spring. What can we bear in this new season? So let's tie it all together. We've looked at how in the seasons of life there are challenges in each. There's fruit for us to bear in each. I wonder as we went through them whether you were able to identify which one you might be in now. And which one were you in before, this one? be interesting for you to map that. And did you bear fruit? What was the fruit? And you probably did. Don't, don't be hard on yourself. You probably did bear fruit. I have found that in all the seasons of my life, the, the, 
the thing that helps me grow rather than just go through it is this knowledge, which we heard sung to us, that all of my life in every season, you are still God. That for me to try to be a woman for all seasons, it really is dependent on me recognising that my God is a God for all seasons. But what does that mean? If God is a God for seasons, what does that mean? Because again, into the dangers of expectations, some believers hold on to what's a God guarantee. That, And again, it's if then. If God is good, then good things will happen to me. If I am a good girl, then good things will happen to me. I'll only have the good seasons. If I'm going through a hard season, then that must mean that I've been bad or I'm being punished or God has favourites or I've been abandoned. See the danger? What does it mean to have a God for all season? It does not mean um, either or. Either I'll go through this season or go through that season. It means both and. In my life, I'm going to go through all of those seasons, the good, the bad and the ugly. I'm going to go through them all. That's normal life. It's not because you've been bad or you've been good. That's what normal life is. So a God for seasons is a God who I experience in that season, no matter which one it is. Rather than thinking, God, are you punishing me? Or I blame you, God, for this. This shouldn't happen to me. I've got membership privileges. I belong to your club. Why are you letting this happen to me? A God for seasons will not protect us from those, from the season, but in the season, a God for seasons will be with us. So whichever season we go through, a God for seasons is there with us in the midst of that. And Ellen is going to play a song for us. We're going to listen to about that reality as we close. Let's pray. Lord, in this room, there would be every possible season represented and there are hearts that are light with summer. There are hearts in this room that are going through the bushfires of loss, lightning strikes of hard times, who are struggling through droughts and floods. Lord, we acknowledge you as a God for all seasons. You are in every one of those. And what I ask, Lord, is that in your grace and mercy, you would draw alongside each one of us here and in that intimate knowledge you have of each of us, that you would make a way to show each one of us in that intimate way that you are with us, that each one of us will know we are not alone and that somehow, Lord, in the midst of this season that each of us is going through, we will hear the invitation of your spirit to bear fruit. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to Hope Community Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed today's message and remember to subscribe to the channel to keep up to date. From everyone here at Hope Community, have the best week.